This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Joel McEwen, card number 409, pitcher for the Chicago White Sox. Okay, Joel McEwen, that's a player I haven't heard of, but we'll get to him in just a minute. But first, we have some follow-up on the previous episode with Mark Chiardi. What's the latest on Team Streak, David? Team Streak was all over the news recently because the Tampa Bay Devilish Raymonds made it to 13-0, and and they were going to break the record set by the 1987 Milwaukee Brewers, but then they lost to the mm. Toronto Blue Jays. And so they are also at 13-0 and in that all-time standing. So the baseball immortality of Mark Chardy, Joey Meyer, Juan Nieves, among others, Rob Deere, Robin Yount, Paul Molitor, you know, those guys, is still intact. So Team Streak still alive as the greatest start to a season just tied now with the 2023 Tampa Bay Rays, as well as the 1982 Atlanta Braves. Yeah, and I think the mustaches from that 87 Brewers team serves as the tiebreaker to put them on top. We also have something I saw on Twitter, this post from Old Time Hardball. I don't know if this is a poster, some kind of (laughs) PR photo with late 80s, 1989 Seattle Mariners pitchers. Big names here, Brian Holman. Eric Hansen, Scott Bankhead, and Randy Johnson. But it is not every day that you see a Scott Bankhead promotional photo. They are all dressed like gunslingers in the Old West. I just thought our listeners would appreciate that there is a PR photo with Scott Bankhead and Randy Johnson. I love it, and I love the the angle of the shot make with Scott Bankhead standing next to Randy Johnson and the hats. They don't look that different in height. I'm not saying they look similar in height, but it doesn't look as ridiculous as it would without big hats on. The difference in size would be much more obvious. Randy Johnson towering over most mere mortals. Randy Johnson was a full foot taller than Scott Bankhead. So they use some forced perspective here, like in the Lord (laughs) of the Rings, but the opposite. They didn't want to make Scott Bankhead look like a hobbit. No, they just slightly hobbitized the big unit. Slightly smaller unit. If you find any promotional poster gold, we would love to see it. You can email us at 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. But now let's go to this week's show and Joel McEwen. And David, why are we talking about Joel today? This is the 409 All-Purpose Cleaner episode (laughs) brought to you by 409. I saw this card posted on the Sabre Baseball Cards Facebook group. And I realized I have no memory of this man, except for this picture. This is a pretty distinctive card, but he played for my Chicago White Sox. I do not remember this man. And that is because he had a very short major league career, only played in 1986 and 87, and then became a legend in an overseas league that we have never talked about before. There's no Sabre bio, so thank you for posting the card in the Sabre baseball cards Facebook group, but thanks for nothing on the research front, Saber. Just kidding. Just kidding. I'm sure somebody's going to get to the Joel McEwen Saber bio someday. Well, in the meantime, we're happy to contribute to the canon. And let's go to the front of 409, where we have Joel McEwen in what I would call a legendary stance. 
in the 1988 top set. You've got him in the dugout. Very much looks like he's one of the staff. Not a player, but looks like maybe one of the helpers on the team. Maybe a manager, assistant manager, assistant to the general manager, or an assistant to the regional manager. Either way, Joel looks like he, he doesn't look like he's ready to get in the game, except for the fact that he's got a big number 50 stitched right across the nuts. They don't put a lot of numbers on pants. This 1987-88 White Sox uniform was one of the few, I think at the time it was the only baseball uniform that had the number on the pants. The designer of the 1982 block letter White Sox uniform took this element from the Astros Tequila Sunrise jersey, which didn't have a number on the front of the jersey, but had the number on the pants instead. And so the designer of that uniform took this element, put the number on the pants, and then after they moved away to the script White Sox uniform, this was one element that they kept, that number on the leg, but they only kept it for two years. So only 87, 88, by 1989, the number on the leg was gone. It does look kind of goofy. I don't know why they did that, because they didn't change it to then having a number on the front of the jersey. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure why they needed the number there. The number's already on the back of the jersey. Isn't that enough? In baseball, it's plenty. Because the positions that are played in baseball are so obvious, like you don't need numbers in multiple places, and then you especially don't need a number on or adjacent to the jock area. There's really no sense in a highlighting it. It's just it's very very distracting. On zooming in on the mustache, uh, let's. I'm not zooming in on the jock area, but I can't tell if Joel has got a mustache going here. It's very difficult to tell. I believe he does. In every other card I have seen of him, including some minor league cards, he always had a mustache. And he also was doing kind of the Captain Morgan pose, yeah. where Captain Morgan would have his foot up on a barrel. Joel has his foot up maybe on a bench. He's talking to a teammate here. You can just see a glove of a teammate. It's a very strange shot behind him, too. What's going on? back there there's like pipes are they in like the on the set of alien at first glance it looks like he is on the steps of the dugout talking to someone wearing catcher gear so it looks like it might be a catcher mitt and it maybe is a shin guard that the other player has on but now that you mention it because the background looks so industrial maybe he's actually in the basement or sub basement of the White Sox spring training facility. This reminds me of my other podcast about buildings and their industrial setups called Physical Plant. Joel would fit right in as an engineer. And the catchphrase that we use every episode, let's go take a look at that boiler. He's Joel McCune, White Sox team engineer and physical plant manager. And he's just here to help. While we're talking about the front of the card, it does have Joel's name there. There is another guy with a last name spelled exactly the same in this set, but that is Jack McKeon. In a 1986 Chicago Tribune article, it said, let the record show that Joel McEwen's last name is pronounced MC-Q-N, McEwen. Let the record show that few people have ever got it right. McEwen said, I'll answer to anything. 
So we will have another card in this set with a name spelled exactly the same but pronounced differently later on in the series. Well, he only played in 43 games, so not many people had the chance to pronounce it. Let's go to the back of 409. And Joel McEwen, pitcher, six foot 185, left-handed thrower and batter, drafted number one special by the White Sox in June 1982. Born February 25th, 1963 in Covington, Kentucky with a home in Hollywood, Florida. Born in Covington, Kentucky, in the Cincinnati metro area, just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. Also born in Covington, the late, great Kentucky Wildcat quarterback, Jared Lorenzen, the other J-Lo. Joel lived in Erlanger, Kentucky, where he went to middle school. But then around high school, the family moved to Hollywood, the one in Florida. And that city boomed around this time. Between 1960 and 1970, it grew from 35,000 to over 100,000 people, now up over 150,000 people in Hollywood. Some famous Hollywood people include model Janice Dickinson, Josh Gad, the voice of Olaf in Frozen, and Billy Mitchell, the ponytail-wearing villain from the documentary King of Kong. Joel went to South Broward High School, and he was the Broward County Player of the Year as a junior. He wasn't drafted out of high school and went to Miami-Dade Community College. A lot of players associated with Miami-Dade Community College, Mike Piazza, Mickey Rivers, Bucky Effing Dent, and Dirty Kurt Effing Bavacqua, only guys <laughs> with Effing as their middle name. And also one of Joel's teammates there was Oda B. McDowell. Oda B. was picked in the first round of the January 1982 draft, and Joel was picked in the fourth round, but both stuck around Miami-Dade College for the spring season. In June, Oda B. was picked again in the draft, this time in the fifth round, but he decided to transfer to Arizona State where he would go on to that great Arizona State career, be a Golden Spikes winner. And Joel was picked in the first round of that June secondary draft. And there were some other names that we know, like Charlie Kerfeld, Cal Daniels, Bip Roberts, and Jody Reed picked in that first round. Joel was picked 16th by the Chicago White Sox. And that takes us to the This Way to the Clubhouse. That's right. This way to the clubhouse that Joel signed as a first round special draft selection with the Chicago White Sox, June 16th, 1982 by scout Walt Widmeyer. Walt Widmeyer played five seasons in the minors in the Yankees and Senators organizations. He went to the University of Miami and so he knew the area well. He was a scout in Florida for the Braves, Phillies, and then the White Sox. Walt passed away in 1997. But Joel signed with the Sox, and he was sent to Sarasota of the Gulf Coast League, where he was really good in four games. Three and one record, 1.86 ERA, three complete games with two shutouts, and a whip of 0.828. That earned him a jump to double A. At Glens Falls, he was five and two in seven games, 3.00 ERA, which was a big jump up, but he was good. 1.3 whip. And he started 1983 back at single A ball and spent the whole season there going 5-5, five and five, but with a 2.62 ERA in 19 games, striking out more than one batter per inning, 110 strikeouts in 99 innings. That earned him a spot in AA in 1984. He was put mostly in the bullpen, and this is his first stint as a regular bullpen pitcher. He started five of 45 games, so 40 games coming on in relief. He finished 10 games, so he wasn't exactly the team's closer. 
and he had two saves. He was pretty good. In 66 innings, he had a 3.64 ERA. He was giving up some more hits and walks. His whip was up near 1.5, but he was good enough to move up to AAA Buffalo in 1985, where he spent the entire year. His stat line looked pretty similar to 1984, except he finished a lot more games, so he was put in the closer role more often. He had five starts in 49 games, and he finished 26 games, 12 of them for saves. 3.72 ERA, again, his whip was close to 1.5. Going into spring training, having just spent the whole year at AAA, the White Sox and Joel hoped that he would impress and maybe make the team coming out of spring training, but he got hit by a batted ball that injured his pitching hand. When he first got hit, he thought it was definitely broken. He didn't even want to look at his hand. Luckily, it was only a bruise. McEwen said, I spent all my time in the trainer's office. It was disappointing. I worked hard all winter. Then I didn't get a chance to show what I can do. That disappointment didn't get him a chance to start the season in the majors. Instead, he started back at AAA. Yeah, but luckily that didn't last very long. He only pitched five games at Buffalo before making it to the majors. In five games, he didn't give up a single run. Eight and a third innings, he struck out eight. Joel was kind of surprised when he got the call to the big leagues, but he felt good. He said, I had my forkball working. Hopefully it will stay. And Tony LaRusso wanted to give him some innings. He said, I'd like to give him a shot to get his feet wet. If he has to face Don Mattingly with the bases loaded in the ninth, I'll do it. Very specific hypotheticals raised by Tony LaRusso here. In that same Tribune article where LaRusso has that quote, there is a fun, perhaps odd anecdote about Ron Kittle. And we love Ron Kittle around here, but right around that same time that they were calling up Joel McEwen, Ron Kittle's wife gave birth to a daughter, Haley, and Kittle didn't have his house keys when he got home, and he had to use a bat to break into his home <laughs> with this newborn child. Sounds like some, a story Ron Kittle would tell. That sounds about right. Well, Joel gets his call up and pitched nine scoreless innings to open up his Major League Baseball account and didn't allow a hit in his first seven games. That's a very impressive start. He retired 11 straight batters during that run, including Don Mattingly, as foretold by Tony LaRussa, Eddie Murray, Dave Winfield, and Cal Ripken. And on the season, he got three wins. His first win came on May 11th, 1986. A game started by another guy we've talked about from Cincinnati, Richard Dotson. And then his second win came at Yankee Stadium, where he struck out Ken Griffey Sr. and Mike Pagliarulo in the eighth inning after retiring Dave Winfield. And then the White Sox rallied to win in the ninth. And his third win came in relief of Tom Seaver, so doing pretty well. Going into late July, he had appeared in 30 games and was very effective, 2.45 ERA, which is a 179 ERA+. plus, A whip of 1.061, so keeping batters off of base, and opponents were hitting only 165 against him. He allowed two home runs and 33 innings. So this is really turning into a good season for him. He was in late July in the middle of another really good run, 12 scoreless innings, and then he woke up feeling sick. Tests revealed that he had hepatitis. And so this meant he had to go to the hospital and had a lengthy hospital stay and also all his teammates had to get immunized against the virus to make sure that they didn't also get hepatitis. So he ends up missing the entire rest of the season, doesn't even do rehab at, at AAA or anything, no other stats on that line. So it looks really good on the card, 
Then he returns in 1987, and he really struggled. In the fourth game of the year, he came on in relief, gave up four runs in four innings, including two home runs, which was the same as his total from 1986. Then in a game against the Orioles in May, he gave up three home runs in his three innings pitched. By June 3rd, in 18 innings, he had an ERA of eight, and he was sent to AAA Hawaii. He was okay at Hawaii, 3-1 with a 4.95 ERA, and the Sox and Joel felt that he had turned it around. Joel said, I'm starting to get the fork ball over. I've quit trying to throw the ball past hitters when you don't throw that hard. I've got my timing together. Hopefully it will show. Well, folks, we have bad news. <laughs> McCune didn't get much opportunity to show that he got his stuff together because he only pitched in two more games after this, including one against the Yankees on July 10th that is a nightmare for a relief pitcher. Joel came in in the second inning, the game tied 2-2, and once again, as foretold by the wise Tony Larusa, the bases are loaded, Don Mattingly is at the plate, Mattingly had homered in the previous two games, and he hits a grand slam in this case, too, makes the score 6-2. to two. Mattingly would go on to homer in a record eight straight games and hit six grand slams that season, two in that eight-game streak. So he was on fire, and Joel was a casualty. The next batter up after Mattingly, of course, in that game was Dave Winfield, who also homered. And then a couple innings later, McEwen gave up a third home run to Mike Pagliarulo, after that, he was sent to Hawaii for the rest of the season. His major league ERA that season was 9.43 ERA, and he had a 6.26 in AAA. That became the end of the road for Joel with the White Sox. Prior to the 88 season, the White Sox sent McEwen to the Padres as a player to be named later. They received the great Ed Wojna in October 1987. Wojna never played for the White Sox. So he was a player to be named later for a player that never played. McEwen bounced around AAA clubs the next few years for San Diego, where his ERA was near six in 36 games, 1989 with Montreal and Atlanta. He never got a call up there. 1990 and 1991, he played at AA and AAA for Baltimore, but his numbers weren't great there. And that's the end of his baseball reference stats. So closing the book on Joel McEwen, two seasons in the major leagues, 43 games, a record of four wins and three losses with a 5.17 ERA. He had 32 strikeouts in 54 innings and an ERA plus of 87, but not time for retirement yet. In 1992, he was all packed up, ready to go play in Italy, but then his contract fell through. He gets a call from a friend who set him up with the Broschat Levi's Braves in Belgium. Broschat. My Walloon is not great. Is it Walloon or Flemish? It might be Flemish. Could be, really could be anything. Broschat Levi's, though. They were known as the Broschat Levi's Braves because they were sponsored by Levi's jeans. Broschat is near Antwerp in Belgium. And Joel shows up, and his catcher doesn't know what to do with him because he had never caught big league-level stuff. So Carl Anzia, who's the catcher on this team, said, for the first year, I couldn't catch him. He throws a fork ball, and I had bruises all over me. 
Sometimes it went left, sometimes it went down, sometimes it went right. Mostly it just hit me on the wrist. Sometimes I just missed the ball. Anzia was a great player in Belgium. He won the Triple Crown, hitting 519 with 13 home runs and 46 RBIs in 26 games. So they have a really short season in Belgium. And most of these guys had other jobs. They were amateur players. Batters also didn't know what to do with Joel's pitches. He was undefeated in three seasons in Belgium. (laughs) I did not find his stat line to see how many games he won. I think that the team went something like 24 and one, one of those seasons. So it wasn't just that Joel was an amazing player. This team was just the best team in Belgium. He went undefeated those three seasons and the team won three straight titles. Joel was also the manager of the team at one point. (laughs) In the off season, he helped his dad run an auto supply business back in Florida. So in articles, there's an article in the New York Times and another one in the AP where during the playoffs in Belgium, he has to fly back to Florida to help his dad run the business. And their best player is just away from the team and manager. So it's a very strange and totally different league than we've read about in any of these. Maybe Jack Lazorko could have played there. But Joel was a legend in Belgian baseball. He was really dedicated to this new Belgian team. He even managed the Belgian national team in the 1993 and 1995 European Championships. In 1995, he married a Belgian woman named Karen. He also, that season, crossed the picket line and was a replacement player for the Marlins in spring training. And I think that that was the end of his ball playing. Certainly the last that we could find. How about in retirement? Aside from that coaching gig in Belgium, I didn't find much. I well, let me restate that. I, I, I found a lot. I found a bunch of official filings of paperwork for an auto distributor in Florida. So if you're interested in how to file for a business license in Florida, I've now learned a lot. I found Joel McEwen is listed as a director of McEwen Distributors, still running an auto parts wholesale business out of Hollywood, Florida, serving all of your automotive forms and supplies needs. Yeah, checking out this website right here. Looks like it's your one-stop shop for all the paperwork you need for your one-stop auto shop. That one's free. I'll let them take that. Industry-leading products. We have them all. So when we looked at the front of the card, we had a feeling that this was a guy who didn't look like a normal player. Kind of looked like he was maybe a player manager or an assistant on the team somewhere. And then it turned out he became a manager. So now we've looked at him a little bit more. What do we think? He had that really good 1986. And on the card, you can't really tell that that season ended in such a disappointment for him. Getting ill, being hospitalized. But he had a ERA plus over 175. That's really good for 33 innings. He probably would have had 50, 60 appearances that season if he had been around for the whole year. But that must have been really tough to deal with that illness and also the ups and downs of the 1987 season where it all just got away from him. And then he spends four or five years being stuck in AAA, having known what it's like to pitch in the big leagues and that you can be successful. And we see guys in this podcast who don't know what to do when it's time to hang them up. But Joel's existence after Major League Baseball seems kind of pleasant. He was playing in this league where the team said they paid players enough to, quote, make sure they stay alive. And Joel would ride his bike to the baseball field 
He'd play teams like the Ray-Ban Borkterhaus Squirrels. I don't even know how to say Borkterhaus. His catcher Anzia said, Joel was always humble, even in a place where he was clearly the best player and the best prepared player. Guys on this team, like Anzia, learned to play baseball, I put that in quotes, with a tennis ball and a piece of wood. When asked, like, you mean like an old bat? He said, no, a piece of wood. They would play (laughs) on basketball courts. There wasn't an organized league for young players. So Anzia comes up and hits 500 in the Belgian league. But when he was 23, his national team coach told him, that is a pity. He could have easily played in double A, but he was too old. And this coach told him most of the guys are drafted at 17, 18, 19 years old. These guys in Belgium didn't grow up steeped in baseball, knowing what being a professional baseball player is, or even really having access to watch professional baseball regularly. And so they also didn't know the good and the bad that comes with that. One teammate talked about sitting with Joel in the dugout, and he said, he's always telling us that after somebody hits a home run, the next hitter is scared because he's afraid the pitcher is going to hit him. That is something that's kind of weird. I don't understand that. Why hit the next player? Also, he says that when a batter gets hit, he goes to the mound to get in a fight. I don't know. I don't think a pitcher can hit anybody on purpose. That's something I never learned to do. When somebody comes up after a home run, why would you hit him? Why not strike him out? That should be better. I would strive to strike out the next hitter. I mean, I would strive to strike out, probably strike out all of the hitters. But I found these quotes from this early 90s. Guys didn't really have a full understanding of Major League Baseball and all of the baggage that comes along with that of brushback pitchers, of intimidation, and they're just trying to to do the thing. And so there must have been a lot of culture shock, but it seems like Joel became a mentor and a friend to a lot of these young players who were definitely not on the same level as Joel. He was kind and never angry. He was said to be very professional. And his catcher said, the night before he pitches, he won't go out. He won't drink. He knows what his job is here. But these amateurs, with Joel's help, finished third in Europe. And in the New York Times, it said, Joel McEwen, who in Belgium is everything the Americans used to say about Sandy Koufax. According to a team official, he was doing baseball missionary work there, teaching fundamentals and building confidence for players who in the 1990s were far away from even minor league quality. Joel himself said, the first year I came to see Europe, then I saw the way people are here. From then on, I came back for that. And so he first just wanted to be a world traveler and took this opportunity and then really fell in love with the place, met his wife and fell in love with baseball there. I was interested in this because we haven't talked about the Belgian Baseball League at all. I didn't know there was a Belgian Baseball League. Now, I kind of want to be a sponsor of the Braschot Braves. It looks from their website like I could probably do that for pretty cheap. Maybe I can sell (laughs) my baseball card NFTs and give them 100 bucks. But it also made me think about the World Baseball Classic and some of those teams like the Czech Republic and Italy, where... Now, with access to baseball, with access to professional and high-quality viewing experiences, you can get the hang of what's going on and really understand it in a way that these guys didn't really have access to, except when Joel McEwen shows up and says, I've been there, this is what it takes. It sounds like Joel was the perfect ambassador for the game 
and for our country. An amazing job there. A great story. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you'd like to join our new exchange program, let us know which country you'd like to go to. Just visit us on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.